You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. In today's show, it is a special uh, report back on the elections that were held last week, with the final results being delivered this past weekend. Quite interesting results. The ANC got 230 parliamentary seats, the DA 84, the EFF 44, the IFP 44, the Freedom Front Plus 10. The smaller parties, the ACDP 4, the NFP 2, the UDM 2, good. Two, COPE 2, ATM 2, ARC 2, the PAC 1, which remains the same. Shame they haven't been that uh, uh, prevalent over the few years. And Aljama 1. My guest today uh, on the special is Marius Ruud. Marius, looking at that breakdown of seats in Parliament, was it to be expected? Uh, I think it was. Uh, most polling showed that the ANC was probably going to lose some support. Uh, there was... They were probably always going to win, but uh, we knew they were going to drop a lot. But uh, one thing that uh, you can see is that the ANC lost 19 parliamentary seats and the Economic Freedom Fighters gained uh, 19 seats. So almost all the ANC's loss in support came from uh, – went to the EFF, it looks like. And uh, one thing um, that seems like the DA didn't manage to cut, uh, eat into the ANC's support at all, which is probably quite concerning for them. And, I mean, they actually even uh, lost support this election. What I find fascinating is that analogy you drew is that the ANC lost 19 and the, and the, and the EFF gained 19. The same can be said for the DA. They lost five seats and the Freedom Front Plus gained six seats. Now, that is, that is a very interesting statistic for me, and I need to ask you this outright. Is there a fringe or was there rather – a fringe far-right element within the DA that have now perhaps moved on to the Freedom Front Plus? No, I don't think we can call uh, people who left the DA for the Freedom Front Plus uh, far-right or anything. But I think what we can say, probably people who, I mean, uh, uh, a lot of people on, so, a lot of, uh, or some DA people on social media have been saying this is actually good, we've got rid of the racists and so on, it's not a party for them. But now they're implying that the DA, the the DA was a party for races before this, which is a bit, uh, I don't think they would say that. So I think the reason people left uh, the DA for the Freedom Front is, although uh, the DA has been pretty good on property rights and opposing its preparation without conversation, maybe hasn't been as solid as it could have been. And uh, its policy on uh, black economic empowerment and affirmative action so on is quite woolly. If you, uh, uh, I've spoken to a couple of DA public representatives and they can explain to me the differences between the ANC's policy and the DAs, but for somebody who's just seeing stuff on social media and so on, there's no, it's a bit hard to actually see what the real differences are between the DA and the ANC on these kinds of policies, where the Freedom Front Plus is also quite heavily opposed to things like uh, BE and so on, so you can see why people possibly left, and I think uh, Northwest was a very good example of how the DA uh, lost support to the Freedom Front, there was an issue down in Schwarzerenica with a teacher and so on, where um, the DA jumped on the race bandwagon and uh, claimed that there was a racial incident at that school where black kids and white kids were allegedly separated and so on. And you, uh, even the Freedom Front Plus has, has said this, that was actually quite a big boost for them. And in Northwest, uh, in 2014, the Freedom Front Plus got 1.7% of the vote. Now in this election, they got 4.3% of the vote. So that's uh, nearly two and a half times, uh, increase. And it's probably, uh, if you look at the stats, um, it's, the DA lost about 1.5% of the vote, uh, so probably most of that you'd think went to the Freedom Front Plus. Well, the reason I, I said your more far-right, your more conservative vote uh, may have left the DA to go to the Freedom Front Plus is is not because of the the fact that, they, that, that all those issues that you raised were the, the issues at hand. The primary issue that you raised was the expropriation of land 
um, without compensation. And the most vocal party that came out against that, that actually lost a seat, was COPE. So one would have thought that if you were middle of the ground, if perhaps you were slightly left of center, if you weren't conservative, if you weren't towards the right, and you were concerned about uh, expropriation of land without compensation, perhaps your vote would go to COPE. But those that went to Freedom Front Plus, Freedom Front Plus is associated with with far right or with right type people. Your take on that? I think that's probably fair to say, but I think the problem with COPE was – They've been, they did so badly between 20, 2009 and 2014. I think that, uh, uh lots of people lost faith in them. And, uh, despite, uh, Terry Lacorta or Monsieur Lacorta being very uh, good on expropriation of that conversation, as you pointed out, I think they probably just lost the support and trust of too many people. Uh, in 2009, the COPE got nearly, uh, 8% of the vote, which is a very good, uh, performance considering they were also only about six months old. They got more than the EFF got in their first election. But there was infighting. Nobody was actually sure what COPE actually stood for, and they dropped down to less than 1% in 2014. And they haven't been able to claw that ground back. And I think for people who are against expropriation without conversation, they're just better options in the DA, actually, is a, as I say, against expropriation without conversation. The ACDP is also a good example of that. And, uh, the Freedom Front Plus. So, I think, uh, there's probably an element of uh, people who are worried about the future of Afrikaans and so on in this country voted for the Freedom Front Plus, but I think it does go a little bit more deeper than that. And you'd probably find, uh, I, I would think, although most Freedom Front Plus voters are probably white Afrikaners, I would imagine that there were a couple of English-speaking South Africans and perhaps even uh, colored people down in the Cape who are worried about uh, the future of minorities and the future of Afrikaans in South Africa. It's very interesting that you raise the point of COPE and that significant percentage they got in 2009. One cannot forget that in 2009 was the year of Polokwane. It was the year that um, Mbeki was basically neutralized. And everybody said Mbeki being uh, a a causer from the Eastern Cape and COPE originating out of the Eastern Cape with um, Lakota and with uh, Shiloa as its, as its two leaders, that it was actually a party that wanted to teach the ANC a lesson for removing Mbeki from office and that they were going to, to stand as a, a, a party based on his principles, on his ideals, even although he never ever openly came out in support of COPE. And only this year, in fact, did he come out openly in support of his old party, the ANC, because he feels that enough change has taken place for him to now openly say that. But the same can be said for other parties. Now, if we look at COPE, COPE lost a seat. They're down to now two seats from that massive spike they had when they were only six months old. If one looks at Achang, Achang lost their only two seats. They're gone. And if one looks at the UDM, which was also founded by two disenchanted people. It was mm. founded by Rolf May, who was disenchanted with the National Party. It was founded by Bantu Halamisa, who had been disciplined by the African National Congress. They've also lost significantly. They lost half their seats. They went down from four seats to two seats. So I think our our Maturity is reaching a point where we're realizing we cannot have 44, 45, 46 parties on a ballot. We need to have parties that we can, we can vote that we know they can be changed. It's surprising that good did so well. Um, good, um, in the short space of time they've been around, they, they gained, um, two seats, um, which I think is going to reflect a lot better in the in the local elections two years down the line because they're very much on the ground in the Cape. I think from a local perspective, they'll do well. But when one looks at the other smaller parties that were founded, let's take the Purple Cow, for example. What happened there? I think uh, with them, they just uh, tried to uh, – they, they only really campaigned on social media. And 
Uh, although uh, I think they got about 15,000, 16,000 votes, uh, that's not a bad effort considering they found it only two, uh, two months ago. But I do think it shows that uh, although um, there, there are two types of politics now, there's your traditional politics and your more uh, sort of uh, millennial politics with kind of thing that got uh, that Barack Obama did very well on and even Donald Trump to, an exa- uh, to a degree but in South Africa I think it's still very important to you need those boots on the ground you need to be knocking on doors you need to be dropping off pamphlets and so on and I think somebody like the Purple Cow just didn't have those resources to be able to do what they needed to do to uh, get themselves into Parliament uh, I mean it's uh, well, one thing that is quite concerning is that a party like Black First Land First who basically, I mean, they're probably the most radical party that's ever run in the South African election, got nearly 20,000 votes. So luckily they didn't get into parliament, but shows there is a market for that kind of really uh, uh, radical, um, uh, racist, uh, race, race nationalism that uh, somebody like Andilem Titama uh, punts. So we'll have to see how they do in the next election, but uh, it does show that there is a small market for that kind of thing. Another surprise for me was that the IFP, um, grew by four seats They went from 10 to 14 seats Do you think this is retaliation For Zuma's recall? Do you think these are the more traditionalist Rural Zulus That that were able to um, Identify more with Zuma And that they've now taken their vote away From the ANC and given it back to the IFP? Uh, it's, I think it's still too early to say What we must remember with the IFP Is that it uh, grew uh, By about the same amount uh, That the National Freedom Party Which was an IFP breakaway lost so it's difficult to say whether people who left the ANC in this election went back to the IFP or to the EFF in KwaZulu-Natal the EFF grew to about uh, 10% and the um, ANC lost about 10 percentage points so it could be that a lot of uh, people uh, most of the people who left the ANC in KwaZulu-Natal actually went back to the EFF and not so much the IFP so I would think most people that's where they went to the EFF rather than returning to the IFP well, it's true what you said about the NFP. The NFP did lose four votes. Um, the NFP was a breakaway. The lady concerned wasn't even sure up until the stage whether they would be going forward to, to register for the national election or for the provincial election based on the fact that there was a funding issue and, again, controversy. And it reminds me of, of, of our 1994 election. The IFP kept us hanging in suspense for, for weeks, and only at, 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 at the 11th hour did they decide that they would participate in the 1994 elections, and a sticker had to be added to the ballot. But those are great memories from 25 years ago, we're yet to talk about today. We're going to be back straight after this break. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. In this special broadcast today, we're breaking down the election results that came out this Saturday after last week, Wednesday's successful election. Now, I say successful election in inverted commas, um, and I'm going to tell you why. It's, it's time to be a little bit con- controversial and, and call it as it is. The IEC reported that out of 26,777 – now I'm pulling a zoomer – 26,000,000. 779,025 registered voters, 17,671,616 voted. That gave a turnout of 65.99%. Now, this is where I beg to differ. That gives a turnout of registered voters. Our actual electorate, and this is not proportionate to that at all, our actual electorate, those people that potentially could have registered and came out to vote, left us with an actual voter turnout 
of less than 50%. If one looks at it realistically, we only had a 49.5% turnout. And that's disgusting because worldwide the average is 63% of the entire electorate. From your perspective at the SAIRR, why are so few people registered that should have registered? And in the same token, why did all these others that were registered, almost 10 million of them, did not pitch to vote? I think the issue is people just don't think that any change comes from it, uh, from the ballot box. And we've seen in lots of local communities, uh, people resort to violence to, uh, to uh, get themselves heard. Uh, Politicians seem to, or the perception at least, is that politicians don't listen to ordinary people. Uh, and the best way to get a politician to come to your area or to listen to your concerns is to protest violently. So this is something we really need to uh, be concerned about because if people are losing faith in the electoral system and the and democracy as a whole, that has uh, serious implications for South Africa going forward in, in the future. I actually feel sorry for Zuma now. Having to read out these telephone number type <laughs> amounts of people, I can just imagine how he got confused in Parliament that day. So I've, I've, I've always had a soft spot for, for number one, the old man, whatever one wants to call him. Um, because of what he did to bring peace about in KwaZulu-Natal, mm. because of the fact that he went to Rwanda and Burundi and negotiated peace between the Hutus and the Tutsis. But one can never forget the damage he's done our country the last um, nine, ten years. This decade is a decade we'll never forget. And we'll, it's a legacy that we'll be feeling for the next 50, 60 years. That being said, you spoke about... Um, unrest to be able to get politicians' attention. One says there's no service delivery, so we burn down a clinic, we burn down a, a library. How do we change that kind of behavior? Is it a generational change? Is it something your organization is involved with? Well, I think it is um, perhaps something to do with the, the generational thing, but maybe it's also a cultural thing going back to the apartheid days. Uh, black people didn't have a representation, so one of the only ways they could make themselves heard was to uh, protest violently and perhaps it's something that hasn't uh, really changed in uh, South Africa today. It's also something you can't really blame people if they don't see any change uh, since uh, the end of apartheid. Perhaps uh, they feel that's the best way to do it. But uh, I think it's also important to note that things are far better today than they were under apartheid. If you look on any metric, South Africa is a much better country than it was in 1994. But there are certain issues. I mean, we've seen how low economic growth is. Uh, education for most South African kids is dismal. Poverty and unemployment are still very high. So you can see why people feel as if uh, nothing's changed. So I think uh, uh, what uh, an uh, organization such as, uh, such as ours would do is uh, see, uh, get people to um, see the value in democracy and the best way to bring change is at the ballot box. We've seen that the ANC is, is actually pretty good at responding to pressure at the ballot box. Uh, for example, in Nelson Mandela Bay in 2016, when it became clear they were probably going to lose their municipality, they appointed Danny Ordan as the mayor. <clears throat> Somebody who's actually quite a good administrator, can actually run things fairly well. They still ended up losing the municipality initially, but you could see there was pressure. <clears throat> the pressure at the ballot box counted. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in uh, Gauteng, uh, in 2014, the same thing, when they almost lost the election, they appointed David Makura, who's also a good administrator, somebody who doesn't have any uh, anything like corruption hanging over him. So they appointed somebody who's a good administrator, can uh, do the ANC proud. In other provinces where the ANC knows they're going to win uh, comfortably, they don't put uh, people, they don't put capable people in important positions. So then that's the best way to make the ANC uh, listen to people, is to put pressure on them at the ballot box. I take what you say about the maturity and the generational change, but I'm still concerned. 
this year we celebrated 25 years since our first democratic election. Next year we'll be celebrating 30 years since the unbanning of um, political parties such as the ANC, the SACP. Um, 30 years since Mandela and others were released from, from prison. So we're talking about 30 years of change, 25 years of democracy. When are we going to start seeing a maturity in terms of protest and how do we bring about that generational change? Because we're already talking about a, a generation that has passed. A lot of people now would not vote for the ANC because they didn't suffer under apartheid. They may be black, they may hear stories from their parents about how bad apartheid was, but because they weren't themselves victims of apartheid, they don't vote from the heart, they vote from the head. So that being said, if we're finding a maturity in terms of those that are registering to vote, why are we not seeing a maturity in those that are determined to protest on the ground against service delivery? I think it's probably uh, these are people who just feel that uh, the uh, voting won't make a difference for them. They f- as I say, they feel this is the only way that they can make themselves heard and that's the only way they can bring change the, to their community. And I think uh, this, there probably needs to be a change within the ANC too. Uh, I think a good example is the town of Wuani in um, Limpopo. Those people wanted to become part of um, Pumalanga, I think, instead of Limpopo. And instead of the ANC saying, okay, let's maybe have a little local referendum, see what the people actually want, they said, no, this is not going to happen. Then we had months and months of unrest there. People uh, didn't go to school. I, th- I think there might actually still be some schools that aren't open there. So I think it's uh, the ANC is also a very top-down organization. They don't uh, they claim to listen to the branches and so on. But I think uh, this might, we might be seeing a uh, bit of a change there in the last couple of elections we've seen, or in the last uh, Elections uh, for the ANC leadership, they've been they've been very uh, well contested and so on. And branches have come and made themselves heard, which is different from how the ANC used to be. But I think this change hasn't uh, filtered through to the government yet. The, uh, our government, I think, is still in a way quite a paternalistic government. They they will tell you what's best for you, rather than letting people, ordinary communities, saying this is what actually what we want. Has government done enough to educate voters about the importance of their vote? I don't think so. I mean, as you can see, uh, less than 50% of eligible uh, South Africans voted. And only, I'm not sure the exact number, but only about 30% of eligible South Africans voted for ANC, which is actually a shocking statistic if you think about it. So I think it is very important for the government and other organizations and other political parties to show, to put forward how important uh, voting is. Uh, perhaps um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next election, uh, next local government election in a place like Nelson Mandela Bay or Johannesburg or Chwane, where the government actually did change. And uh, But there have been some changes in, I mean, in Chwane, the DA-led administration changed the a deficit, a deficit in the billions into a surplus. So that's one way we, where we can see a change of government can lead to positive outcomes. So we'll have to see, uh, will the, have our uh, voters matured enough? Will they, uh, will they see that instead of uh, protesting and so on, the place to make your vo- voice heard is at the ballot box? 100%. When we come back, we're going to break down the ANC DA fights. We're going to talk about whether we are functioning democracy and we're going to look at the future uh, two years down the line. We're looking to our crystal ball and look at local elections. You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to a special edition of Confidential Brief where we break down the election results of the 2019 national elections. With me in studio is Marius Ruert, and he represents the South African Institute of Race Relations. They issued certain polls prior to the election. They weren't too far off on those polls. 
Um, let's get back to the results of the election. DA, quite a shocker to everybody. Not the kind of voting percentage that they received that people were anticipating. Um, is Musi to blame? Uh, I think Musi is to blame for uh, to a degree. Uh, some polling that we did actually showed that uh, the DA's two previous leaders, uh, Tony Leon and Helen Ziller, were more popular than Musi among South Africans, including amongst black South Africans. So it just shows the myth that you need a black leader to uh, get black votes. And I think Musi, I think Musi is, uh, is a good guy, but I think he was, uh, pushed too fast, uh, too far too fast. Uh, he only came into the DA in 2011. He was, uh, immediately made a city councillor. He was made national spokesperson a couple of years ago and became leader in 2015 of the party, I think. So, uh, and I'm not sure Moose himself knows exactly what he stands for at the moment and what, where he wants the DA to go. So I think that's part of the problem. And as I said, they seem to be quite muddled on uh, a lot of policy issues. I think BE is a very big one for a lot of people. Are they pro-BE? Are they not pro-BE? If they are pro-BE, why are they different from the ANC? And I think uh, the DA couldn't really explain that. And I think that shows the election results. The DA went from 22.2% to 20.8% uh, nationally. And in Gauteng, where a lot of people thought they were going to push the ANC quite hard, they actually also went backwards compared to their 2014 uh, results, where they got 30% in the election. Now they only got uh, 27%. So, And they also only grew in uh, three provinces. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it is actually a shocking election for the DA, no matter how that was going to Do you think uh, DA um, Premier candidate Solly sent out uh, his CV this morning? I don't think so. I think um, Solly's a guy that uh, I think a lot of people could get behind. He did a fairly good job in uh, Chwane, I think. And he's also a guy who's been involved in the DA for a long time. He got involved, I think, just after it became the DA. Uh, he's been involved for close to 20 years in the DA. He's m- worked his way up. And I think he'll be uh, a good uh, leader of the opposition in the Gauteng legislature if he decides to stay there. But uh, in, uh, if we look at the trends, the ANC is definitely going to lose power in Gauteng sometime. But probably the next election And I think uh, Somebody like Solim Simanga The best thing to do now Is lay the groundwork Work hard uh, To uh, actually put a Very good uh, opposition uh, Challenge to the ANC In 2024 Do you think Musi Maimane Should be sending out his CV? I think Musi Has probably got a Bigger problems than Solim Simanga I think uh, We'll have to see There's a federal executive meeting Today in the uh, DA um, I don't think there's anything uh, Sinister about that I think they probably Would have held it uh, No matter how they did In this election but uh, I think somebody has to take the fall for what's happened with the DA. They've, I mean, they did poorly. I mean, there's no in, – in this current environment with the last 10 years we've had of Jacob Zuma, and you can say what you want about Cyril Ramaphosa, but we still have people like Ace Magashule, a harp in the uh, party. We still have people like Dave Mabuza. And um, people, if you vote for the NC, you're voting for Cyril Ramaphosa, but you're also voting for Magashule and Mabuza, etc. And the DA couldn't even play on that. I think the DA also – they ran, a, again, a very negative uh, uh, campaign. The DA didn't tell you what, why you should put the DA in power. They told you why you should keep the ANC and EFF out. And I've said before, the DA has actually got a lot that they can uh, show. I mean, in the Western Cape, uh, the Western Cape is one, uh, definitely our best-run province. Nearly every DA municipality uh, is, gets clean audits. Uh, if you look at the list of uh, best-run municipalities, it's dominated by DA-run municipalities. But they can't, uh, for some reason, they can't put forward why they're different and why we should vote for them. They're just about why we should not uh, vote for the ANC or the EFF or smaller parties. And I think that's also what came to bite them. There was very, uh, they claim that splitting the votes is this terrible thing, but in our proportional representation system, uh, nearly every vote counts. So that was also a bit uh, disingenuous of the DA to say that, I think. 
You're listening to Confidential Brief. My name is Chad Thomas, and we're in studio with Marius Ruet discussing today um, the outcome of the elections. Um, based on what you just said about the DA running a negative campaign rather than a positive campaign, showing rather the negative aspects of their of their competitors rather than what they were going to do to change, one has to still ask the 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 most important question: with the turnout that we had um, of of the mid 60s in terms of registered voters, but in actual fact, just less than 50%. Of those, the majority still voted 57.5 thereabouts for the, for the ANC. It's the first time the ANC's dropped below 60, but they were still um, brought back with a big majority. Why are people still voting for the ANC when we see what's occurred over the past decade? Well, I think the, the other opposition parties simply don't, uh, aren't uh, offering something that people want, and the opposition parties need to look at themselves and ask why this is the case. And also, uh, 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 two things that we also have to remember, that uh, the ANC, uh, for all its faults, it uh, has run, uh, South Africa is a much better place than it was in 1994, and a lot of that is because of the ANC. Uh, a, lot of the, um, a lot of the progress that we've made has stalled since 2009, and that's obviously because of President Jacob Zuma. But as I say, if you look on almost any metric, South Africa is doing much better than it was. And also for a lot of people, uh, the ANC is more than a political party. It's, uh, you know, it's, it is something that freed them from apartheid. And this is not something that's, uh, just happens in South Africa. If you go look in, uh, if you go look abroad, there'll be people who vote, say, in the north of England who voted, they vote Labour, their parents vote Labour, their grandparents vote Labour. It doesn't matter who's in charge, they are Labour voters. And this is something, even in uh, South Africa during apartheid, so I remember um, when I was at university reading about an old survey that had been done. Most Afrikaners said they would still vote for the National Party, whether they agreed or disagreed with what the party was doing. Because the National Party was, in a way, their ANC. It was something that freed, in inverted commas, from uh, British imperialism and so on. So I think the ANC is just, uh, it's such a... Uh, I mean, it is a. It was a great organisation. It still is in certain ways, but uh, and I think a lot of people. This is why they still vote for the ANC. And as I say, it's, it has done a lot for South Africa. Although it is making a lot of mistakes now, and I think we have seen how it lost support. That this is filtering down. But uh, one thing that is probably a bit worrying: the ANC has lost all its support to the EFF, who is a party whose uh, economic policies are still stuck in the 20th century. Will destroy this country if. Uh, they are implemented in South Africa. And so that's something we have to ask. Why is the ANC losing support to uh, an organization like the EFF and rather somebody who's trying to find the middle ground like the DA, for example? We're going to take a break. When we come back, on talk about factionalism within the ruling party and the potential of a coalition between the ruling party and what seemed to be their biggest enemy, the EFF. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to a special edition of Confidential Brief where we break down the 2019 national elections, our 25th year of democracy. And with us in studio, Marius Root from the South African Institute of Race Relations. Prior to going to break, I mentioned I want to chat to you about factionalization within the ruling party. One would think that after um, Nazarek, following what happened in Mangaung and uh, Polokwane, the party had come together. But when one listened to Ace Magashule over the weekend, discussing the fact that with or without Ramaphosa, the party would have got those um, those 57% votes. And when one hears Fikile Mbulula saying, no, without Ramaphosa, we would have most probably only got 40% of the votes. 
votes. One shows a party that is still very factionalized, people that are not on the same page. And this has impacted on South Africa for decades, not just the past 10 years with with regards to, to Zuma and others, but we saw it with Zuma and Mbeki, and we saw it prior to that with Mbeki and Ramaphosa after Kadesa. What is wrong with the party that it is so factionalized, and do you think the party needs to take a bit of introspection following this uh, election? I think the party definitely needs to uh, introspect a little bit. Uh, and I think Fakila and Balula's right. If Ramaphosa hadn't been the leader of the ANC, I think the ANC would have got under 50% or very close to it, and they certainly uh, would have lost Gauteng. And I think the problem with the ANC is uh, during apartheid, it was easy to say who the enemy was, and people generally had uh, one goal within the party. Now I think uh, there are a lot of people in the party who are now just there for the politics of uh, patronage to try get as much as they can uh, it's their turn to eat so to say and I think uh, Ace Magashule is probably a very good uh, uh, symbol of this and we've seen uh, stories coming out of the free state how Ace Magashule used his uh, position as the premier of the free state to funnel money to himself and to his family David Mabuza is also an example of this so I think uh, the ANC is uh, at the moment uh, still a very broad church but I'm not sure they even know what uh, religion they want to be anymore. So I think the ANC, probably in the long term, we're probably going to see some sort of a split, but I don't think it'll happen anytime soon because, the, as somebody said uh, once, it's cold outside the ANC, and I think that's still the case. Talking about that, um, prior to the election, Ace Magashule said, come home um, to Julius Malema. He said, this is your home, we miss you. You then had Julius Malema stating that... Um, Ramaphosa, through third parties, had approached him and Floyd Chivambu um, and Dalian Porford offered them cabinet posts um, or deputy minister posts if they didn't get actual direct cabinet posts. Do you believe that there's there's a chance that the EFF and the ANC could go into a coalition? What would the coalition achieve apart from a two-third majority? And do you believe in any part of your being that the EFF could have been a false flag project at any stage? Uh, I think there's probably a fair – I wouldn't say that there'll be a formal coalition between the ANC and the EFF, but I do think if the ANC decides to go forward with expropriation without compensation, the EFF will certainly support them on that, and that will probably have dire consequences for South Africa. Uh, on Julius Malema saying that uh, he was offered uh, a cabinet post, I think we need to take that with – Quite a large pinch of salt. Ramaphosa came out and said it didn't happen. And Julius Malema, he is known for saying absurd things. He, he said a couple of months ago that uh, Jews, I'm sure a lot of people heard this, Jews, Jews were training uh, Afrikaners to be snipers in Pretoria. And, I mean, that's one thing where our media has uh, actually been quite slack. Nobody said, do you have any evidence of this actual crazy assertion. Nobody, everybody's like, haha, Julius just saying something funny again. And so I think Julius Malema says things, the media doesn't actually, uh, to hold them accountable as they should. And I think this might have been one of those, uh, times where, uh, the, and, and, and if he was offered a cabinet post, then, uh, it shows you that the ANC and EFF are very close. And I don't think the EFF was started as a false flag operation, but I do think it is effectively an external wing of the ANC. But, um, if Julius Malema does return to the EFF, uh, although he controls that party with an iron fist, I think it is starting to become bigger than him. And I think a lot of people would be very upset who are in the party, would be very upset if Julius Malema did leave uh, or did go back to the ANC. Uh, I think it would probably be the case that there'd be a, a rump EFF that uh, uh, survives. But I think without Julius Malema, I'm not sure EFF will be able to survive or be any kind of um, – um, we've seen this in all our political parties. A lot of them are, are effectively personal vehicles for the leader. I mean – 
Cope is an example. UDM is an example now. And I think if Julius Malema had to leave and go back to ANC, that would be the end of the EFF, even if some of their members did, decided to stay outside and didn't want to go back to ANC. But we saw what happened on Dealey when he left. Exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about somebody that sprung to prominence. Um, her name's always been out there if one um, follows uh, media reporting, etc. But she really sprung to prominence in this election with her... Um, her, her court case with the EFF and then her comments that the DA made against her while she was chatting on an ENSA interview. It's about Kariba Brown. What do you think about media reporting on this election? What do you think about the media beginning to have a vested interest and opinion on politics? Should they remain objective? Should they remain the fourth estate? Or do you believe they, they should express their opinion, which we see more and more of um, in the last few years, especially leading up to this election? We saw some very, very well-known journalists outright saying, if you vote for the ANC, you're basically stupid because of what we've reported on in the past. Oh, I think it's actually good to be open about your biases. I mean, uh, if uh, in, in the UK this uh, happens often, a political uh, a newspaper will say we support the Tories or uh, the Labour Party or whatever, and then you can read the newspaper through that lens. And I think with Karima Brown, I think kudos to her. She's obviously she's clearly an ANC person. She doesn't try hard it, and then you can filter that analysis uh, through that. Uh, I think Peter Bruce is also an example. He was a big Cyril uh, Ramaphosa supporter coming up into uh, this election, and he he wasn't shy to say he was. So I think it's actually better for the media to be open about their biases. Say, look, we are supporting the ANC in this election, or the DA, or you know, we support the ANC, but I think maybe give them a give them a bit of a fright, vote for somebody else this election. So I think it's actually better for our uh, discourse if the media is open about who they support in a uh, uh, in a certain election. Do you believe the media, apart from reporting objectively, may have an impact? On elections, one could look at Farah Hafaji, who came out in the past week prior to the election and reported on all the corruption that she had reported on all the preceding years that directly involved the ANC. So almost as if to remind the public, listen, I've reported extensively on ANC corruption. These are the guys that you have an opportunity to vote or maybe not vote for. And then there's two other examples I want to give you. Just prior, one month prior to, to Nazrek, you had the book President's Keepers come out, uh, which basically destroyed, of course, Zanid Lamina Zuma's chances of being voted in. Well, it was one of the main reasons. In my opinion, it was a, a major factor. That book came out a month before the Nazrek conference. And then just a month before this national election, Peter Louis Marburg's book comes out about the Secretary General of the ANC, Ace Magashule, against the state. So do you believe that the, the media's objectivity reaches a point where they, they can also be used or manipulated to to further another agenda. Well, uh, on Feral, I think uh, I was looking on her Twitter account, and she also put photos of uh, her ward in yeah, in Johannesburg, where the rubbish had been collected for uh, quite a long time. So I think Feral was trying to be very uh, uh, fair and show where the ANC had gone wrong, but also showing that the uh, DA has also made some mistakes. But uh, the fact of the matter is. This election had nothing to do with city government, so I'm not sure why Ferrell would uh, bring that up. So, but uh, I think it's uh, the timing of both those books was very interesting, and I would be surprised if they didn't have an ulterior motive in releasing them. But I mean, if there was anything, uh, as long as all these what came out in President's Keepers and in Peter Louis Marburg's book was true, I don't see any problem with them coming out at any time. And I think uh, if um, the media, like anybody else, is probably does have vested interest in the. Um, the outcome of the election, so it shouldn't be surprising that there is 
there are attempts to try uh, influence elections and influence uh, voters and so on. We're going to take our last break of the day. When we come back, we're going to look into our crystal ball and uh, ask Marius to tell us what he thinks is going to happen in the next two years leading up to our local elections and how we can see our cabinet either stay the same, shrink, or maybe even grow. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. And we threw to the final stretch of this uh, special edition of Confidential Brief where we broke down the election results which came out on Saturday, two days ago. In studio with me is Marius Ruet. And Marius, going forward, we have a local election that's coming up in, I think, uh, 18 months to two years down the line from now. Um, what do you see happening? We all went into this election um, where we saw certain outcomes which didn't materialize. What do you think is going to happen from a local perspective? And what have we learned looking at this national election and our past local election? Well, uh, in local government elections, the opposition tends to do better than they do in national elections. Uh, but So you would think that perhaps the DA and so on will make uh, even more inroads. But as you saw in this election, this is the first election the DA didn't grow uh, in national elections. So could quite possibly happen uh, in 2021 in the local election that the DA falls back. And all depends how um, how people feel about the government under several pauses. Some people who left the ANC in 2016 or decided to stay at home, which was a big uh, big factor in helping the DA win places like Nelson Mandela Bay, Johannesburg and Schwane, they might come out and vote for the ANC again. So I think it all depends what happens in the next two years, how Silver Ramaphosa runs the government and what happens uh, within the DA. Are they are they going to carry on being quite a mess at the moment? Or will they be able to become more focused and, uh, just, and be clear about what they want? If they do, then I think it's possible that uh, we'll see um, some fallback in uh, ANC sports again. But at the moment, I would be surprised if the DA manages to hold on to uh, the three cities they govern at the moment. But uh, we'll have to see what happens. And um, the, as I say, as, a, as I feel now, I think the DA would be uh, would be a good result for them to just hold on to Chwane um, or, or Johannesburg, one of the two cities. But I, I think they they got a lot of work uh, cut out for them to to do that. And what do you think about our cabinet at the moment? Do you think Ramaphosa is going to listen to the will of the people and realize that you can't have so much um, patronism? Because we saw this patronism rise during the age of Zuma, where people that were loyal to him and his faction were granted ministerial posts. Um, there were cabinet posts that were created. There were deputy mm-hmm. posts that were not needed that were created. In some instances, there were even two deputy posts created just to be able to fill seats with people that were loyal to the leader of the day. What do you foresee happening? Well, I think uh, for President Ramaphosa, a very easy win will to be will be to reduce the size of the cabinet from whatever it is now, 30-odd ministers to maybe 20-odd or maybe even uh, maybe 20. I think that will show that he is, uh, show superficially that he's serious about reform and wants to uh, uh, make government smaller and more efficient. So I think if Sir Ramaphosa wants to uh, make, uh, make it clear that he is serious about these things, then he should cut the Cut the cabinet, and uh, but he's also got uh, he's also got his own games to play. He's also going to have to keep certain factions happy. So I think it's going to be a very difficult job for him. But I 
I'm pretty sure you will cut the size of the cabinet. And I think also you'll need to get rid of people who are clearly not fit to be cabinet ministers, such as Nomvula Mokonyane or Batabili Dlamini. These are kinds of people that need to be removed from the cabinet, and they don't do the country any good by being in these positions of power. Let's talk about what you just said there. He, he has to answer to the top six. He has to answer to the factions. But there's already talk that he's discussing the deputy president's post of the country, perhaps going to Kosazani Dlamini Zuma and David Mabuza, who's the deputy president of the party, who would normally automatically be deputy president of the country if one goes by the historical ANC, um, being removed. What is your, what's your viewpoint on that? I think it'd probably be a good thing, uh, Dlamini Zuma, for all her faults. So you see, she seems to be quite a good administrator. She's, when she has been a minister, she's run the ministry she's been in charge of pretty well. So I think she would be probably somebody who's, uh, would be good as deputy, uh, deputy president. And even though she ran against President Ramaphosa, she does seem to be sort of outside the faction fighting. Uh, and, uh, we also seem, uh, sometimes forget that in 2007, she was actually Tabo Mbeki's running a mate, running mate against her ex-husband, Jacob Zuma. So she can be, she's kind of on both sides of the ANC. So I think this would probably be uh, quite a good uh, good thing to do, but perhaps uh, President uh, or Deputy President Mabuza will be put in somewhere else. So maybe he'll be uh, minister uh, in a different position. So President Ramaphosa has got his uh, work cut out with him, uh, cut out for him to try keep all the different ANC factions happy. But I do think if uh, Dlamini Zuma is my Deputy President, that would actually be a pretty good move by the President. I think Dr. Skosani Lavini Zuma kicks herself every time she thinks back to her divorce more than 20 <laughs> years ago where she didn't drop the name Zuma because that unfortunately came back to haunt her. And I think it was a very unfair haunting because if one looks at how she acted as minister, whether it was home affairs, whether it was, I think, at health, health at, at yeah. a stage, she was a good minister. Um, at the AU, although she only served one term because she wanted to come back and stand for local um, with, with South African government, um, she did well there. She was respected. She was the first woman head of the mm. AU. So I've never had a problem with her personally. But what we do have problems with, again, is the fact that the party is not based on a person. It's based on a movement. And this movement makes the determinations. It's not just the president who determines his executive. Can you see a lot of fight back from Mabuza if Mabuza, if there's talk of him being removed as president? Uh, vice president, that is. Um, I don't think, I think... Uh but David Mabuza himself is probably fairly safe. I think he might be happy to sit back as deputy president of the country if he knows he can uh, make a attempt to become president of the ANC in South Africa in uh, it would be 2027, I think, in the that'd be in this, the ten-year cycle after uh, Nazrek. So I think perhaps uh, that's not where the fight back will come from. I think it's probably going to come from somebody like Ace Magashule, who seems to be getting a lot of pressure from uh, outside and within the ANC. So and he's already said some things. Uh, that are quite opposed to President Ramaphosa, as you mentioned earlier, saying that this, is, this uh, win was because of the ANC, not because of uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, which I think is true partly. But if it was without Cyril Ramaphosa, the ANC would not have won a majority in this election, I don't think. So I think that's where the real uh, fight back is going to come from within the ANC if it comes from. If it comes, it will be from Ace Magashule and uh, th- uh, that faction. Marius, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, sir, Chad. And one thing I'm taking away from this interview is that Marius kept on emphasizing the fact that our country is in a far better place than it was prior to 1994. And he is right. We have a functioning democracy. We saw that in the local elections. And we've seen it in the national elections. If our elections were rigged, we would not have seen the results that we saw in these elections or the results that we saw in the local elections where three metropolitans were given up at that time by the ruling um, party. 
More importantly, we have a functioning judiciary, as we've seen with major, major court rulings. As such, there's a lot of confidence in South Africa. And in closing, optimist or pessimist, Marius? Jeez. <laughs> I think uh, on balance, I'd still be an optimist, but it depends what the president does now. He needs to make structural changes. He needs to cut back on government spending. He needs to get rid of... Uh, the crap people within the ANC and uh, if you manage to do those things which leads us to having economic growth and see decline in poverty and unemployment then I will be an optimist but uh, if uh, if you don't do those things then I'm probably going to be on the pessimistic side of things You've been listening to a special edition of Confidential Brief where we broke down the election results with Marius Roots from the South African Institute of Race Relations I'll be back right here on 101.9 FM um, next week Monday same time same place